Welcome to the Evolution of Innovation podcast, supplying you with the tools and insights to access your business's full potential. I'm excited to welcome Rita McGrath here to the podcast. Rita, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. All right. Well, look, I had such a a great time reading your new book called Seeing Around Corners. (laughs) I'm glad. And the book is about how organizations can anticipate inflection points Mm -hmm. in the market Mm -hmm. so that they're not left having to react to changes and get Mm -hmm. caught flat-footed. Exactly. One of the things I I was anticipating is that this was going to be a far more technical, data-driven book. Mm -hmm. Like how you can use big data to anticipate these things, and that is actually not at all in the book. It's not what the main focus is, not at all. Yeah, it's a very humanistic approach. So I'm I'm curious to, to hear why you emphasize the human approach to this rather than the easy, low-hanging fruit of big data. <laughs> well, the, um, the reality of any strategic inflection point is that it happens in the future, mm. or at least the ones that you care about happen yeah. in the future. And most of the data that is used in traditional research studies or that's used in traditional kinds of e- economists' books uh, are lagging data. They're about the past. And I really wanted to write about human processes in the future. And, you know, when you look at companies that have struggled or stumbled with this, it's almost never a problem of technology or data or anything like that. It's always the human issues that are the main reasons things go off the rails. That's a big topic in your book. And you must get these questions all the time about, well, how do I not get sidelined buy an inflection point and find myself reacting. What do you notice are the biggest challenges to an organization when you're being, when you're working with different leaders? Well, I should start with what an inflection point is, because I think it's hard to understand that without understanding exactly what phenomena I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So the way that I define a strategic inflection point is it's some change in the environment which makes the assumptions people have about their businesses or about the way their organizations work less and less valid. It's usually a, a change in a constraint or a change in a regulatory regime or something that shifts that makes what you thought was true no longer true. So the reason people have such trouble grappling with inflection points is by definition, let's say you're the world's leading expert in film technology and somebody comes along and says, well, guess what? The world is going to be digital. Well, digital is a different business model, a different consumption pattern, different user behavior, Mm -hmm. different science, different research library. So if you're somebody who spent their life becoming a deep expert in the world of film, that's very unsettling. So that's one dimension of why people resist. Um, The other thing about inflection points is that they often change business models. And so what you'll see then is the power dynamics in an organization change because the people that have power are the people that control whatever's the scarce, valuable resource the organization needs. So if there's a power shift, obviously the people that have power today are not so keen to give it up. Correct. Well, that's, and that's a running theme throughout your book is there's always this tension between having stability in what works in a business model. And then on the other end of the spectrum, Are we going to be continuously trying, being paranoid about all the ways that our business model could fall apart and causing a lot of disorder and chaos inside of an organization? So 
how, how do you best advise people to balance that tension? Well, I've looked at companies over long periods of time that were able to do that well. And that's, in fact, what I found it was that they, they had this fascinating dynamic tension between things that remain stable and things that are very dynamic. So as a general rule, what stayed stable? Re ironically, their strategies tended to stay pretty stable. Their culture their values, um, their networks, so both internal and external networks, they tried to keep those pretty stable, which is why you see so many consulting firms, for example, they're actively nurturing their alumni networks because mm -hmm. that's where future business and contacts and so forth can come from. Um, what did they dynamically adjust? They did a lot with their budgets, so they were very good at getting resources to where they could do the most good. Uh, they tended to have a full portfolio view of those resources mm -hmm. and move them around to be against their best opportunities. They moved people around. So you had enough time in a role to get some mastery of it, but then they might move you somewhere else to give you different kinds of exposure. Uh, teams kind of flexed as needed. So you had a, a lot of dynamism around talent and around training. So I think it's a very interesting thing that, you know, human organizations are not great when you come in every day and it's a brand new day and I've got to rethink who I am and what I'm right. doing. But at the same time, you don't want people just getting so locked into a particular set of activities that they can't adapt. And as we move into a period now of really unprecedented change, mm -hmm. are you starting to see that there are new roles and new capacities that are being required in order to deal with some of this change? And how does that fit into t uh, traditional structures? So what I see is a lot of traditional barriers to, to industries, to territories, to functions are getting very blurry. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if you think about who are the best CFOs, let's say, for the future, well, of course, they're going to be good at their traditional preoccupations of the numbers and the, you know, the financing aspects of life. But they're also going to have to get good about what do those numbers mean? What are they telling us about the future? What are the patterns that I see? How do I communicate the reality of what we're up against to the outside world? So there's a lot of additional activity that needs to be thought through. We're also seeing jobs that never existed before. Right. So, you know, human factors, engineer <laughs> um, people that are able to embed uh, humanity together with the technology. Uh, that's going to be a whole set of new um, sort of actions that need to be put into place. Well, on that particular topic that there's maybe already be an inflection point around what kinds of trainings and what kind of development is being required from companies to produce for their own employees and what kind of skill development. So are you seeing a shift in the kind of skill sets that are even being needed from employees? Yeah, very much. Uh, so the shift in skill sets is, um, I think it's a cosmic almost problem mm -hmm. uh, that we've got this you know, plethora of activity and jobs and opportunity for people at the upper end of the skill level. And yet we're not providing that, you know, employers have dramatically cut back on the kinds of training that they used to provide as a matter of routine. And if you think about it, a lot of our assumptions about the employer employee contract assumed loyalty on both sides right. that, you know, you joined a company, they had an obligation to you. Meanwhile, because they offered you security, you had some obligation to them. And so you both felt you could make longer term commitments to one another. 
Well, I would say in the 80s and 90s, that's been completely fractured. You know, labor has lost enormous amounts of its previous clout. Um, individuals are, you know, have been taught that corporations aren't loyal to them. We've had mass layoffs. We've had, you know, as firms change, if they leave it too late, what they find is they have to make a wrenching shift in how they are. And so you, as a human being, you know, the sensible thing to do is you prepare yourself for the insecurity by picking up as many skills personally as you can, but those are not organization-specific skills. When it comes to continuous education and reskilling, how do you foresee employers and employees being able to navigate the future when right now we are dealing with very short life cycles at companies? So I think what we'll start to see is um, company agnostic uh, learning platforms where people will build up their sets of experiences. And um, as I mentioned, one of my um, clients and actually a company I've been watching for a while is called Degreed. And they're an example of, um, I would say, a new age learning platform. It, it's not a learning management system in the traditional sense, but it sort of identifies an individual learner and then all the inputs that they've got. And they have a credentialing option where, let's say I want to be credentialed for change management. And so I provide evidence of my skill at that. And then there might be independent experts who would weigh in. So it's quite labor intensive. But if a credential is worth having, say, for a more senior level job, then uh, then it's worth going through that process. But what I think is interesting is it, it implies a credential without a, an accompanying degree. Mm. So it doesn't really matter how you got your expertise what matters is whether you have it. And increasingly, I think we're going to start to see systems that um, that do that. We're also seeing a rethinking of what degrees are valuable. So one of my favorite examples of this is a company, um, one of my favorite examples of this is a program that IBM actually initiated. And it's called P-TECH, uh, or Pathways to Technology. And it's a six-year program, which combines high school and an associate's degree. Hmm. And so the students in this program, they, so they're there for six years. When they graduate, they get both their high school diploma and a associates. If they wish, they can continue to get a four-year degree. They can go on. Or at the level of the associates, if they've made it through this course, IBM and its sister consortium companies will guarantee folks a job. So a job in tech, a job in support. Um, and they know that they have been um, qualified for these right. jobs because they've helped design the curriculum. So to me, that's a really super way of saying, um, you know, here's a massive skills deficiency problem and we're not going to wait till people are in their thirties and sort of scratch our heads and wonder what we do with them after they've been employed. We're going to start at the high school level or even earlier and help them build those skills in a very a disciplined way from the beginning. What they're finding is a lot of the people that come into this program who are often not from very privileged backgrounds, in fact, most of them aren't, um, actually do go on to get their four-year degree and do go on to get higher level jobs than they ever would have aspired to if they hadn't been involved in this P-TECH program. So they're just now seeing the first few cohorts yeah. come through it and the results have really exceeded everybody's expectations. And what's fascinating as well is um, they graduate with no debt. So they've got a college degree, they've got no debt, and they've got a job waiting for them. Now, that to me sounds like something that's a really good solution to a pretty formidable problem. Wow, that's really great. And now, is that done in, 
in is that its own standalone program or is that done in tandem with existing school systems? It's done in tandem with existing school systems. Wow. So there, there are extra things that get added in. Mm -hmm. but for example, the physical facilities, some of the faculty and so forth are, are from existing schools. And I think they've got something like 800 affiliates now. So they're really growing all across the country. Now, it's not an easy program. So I should also say right. um, it takes a certain amount of discipline and effort on the part of the learner. But if you think about what knocks people off some kind of track, it's usually not not their lack of discipline. It's, you know, their car broke down so they can't get to class or they just don't have, the, you know, a lot of people in these kinds of programs, they just don't have buffers. Yeah. Um, I was watching a, um, there's a, a former student of mine who made a wonderful documentary called Unlikely. And in the documentary, she follows the paths of four students who went a very unconventional route through the schools in Akron, Ohio, mm. and makes the observation that, you know, a student at Princeton can make horrific, horrible, I mean, really stupid, life-changing errors, and they're going to be fine because they've got lots of extra buffers, lots of extra resources. For this population, they don't. So one broken down car, one illness in the family, one, you know, lock up in jail for one yep. thing or another, and the whole infrastructure that they rely on gets destroyed. So that's another issue I think we really need to grapple with because a lot of the social supports people used to have are also eroding. You know, there was a, a piece in, um, I think, a piece in the Times recently about how the fact that we're all on different schedules means we're all on different social worlds. You know, and and it's getting worse and worse. You know, you've got two parent families now and the erosion of the nine to five job and the weekends guaranteed off and the regular going to church and all that sort of stuff means people really are flying with the much leaner social supports than they ever used to. And I'm not so sure that's all that healthy. Well, I think we're really grappling with how do we create that? And I think it's something that we find in our organizations. And some of this gets expressed in terms of people wanting more work-life balance, and mm -hmm. some companies are responding to it. Mm -hmm. And so we see some of that, but um, the famous book in the late 90s called Bowling Alone kind of yes. identified <laughs> this very principle. Right. And I think that's one of the struggles, I think, for leadership is how do you create workplaces that are also a source of fulfillment and connection and engagement? Well, and I think one of the things you're seeing that's a bit of an unintended consequence is people are now talking about purpose and corporations mm -hmm. have to have a purpose and the galvanizing idea is a purpose. And you asked earlier about human beings and what are the barriers. One of the ways to overcome those barriers and get alignment is if we can all agree on a common purpose, perhaps we disagree on how to get there, but if we can all agree that that purpose is worth struggling for at the outset, then then it becomes sort of tactics, you know, where we can now agree on where we want to get to as a goal. And my colleagues over at the consultancy InnoSight study these transformation companies. And one of the big conclusions they came to is if you're just, if you're doing an organizational transformation and the message is, oh, we want to do this because we're going to give great returns to our shareholders, that's not going to work, you know, but if you can do it and say, Here's the way we're going to improve human life. You know, and here's the way we're going to make things better. Um, and let's all pitch in and go towards that goal. Um, I think that's much more motivating and meaningful. So I think in a way, the breakdown of purpose in other parts of our lives have meant organizations are being looked to to provide that sort of red thread through our through our lives. Yeah, well, and I think that's one of the interesting opportunities that are available. Now, I, I do find people struggle at the leadership level to actually establish that purpose. 
Um, I know a client I was working with, it was treated more like an issue of copy editing rather than really looking at what they exist for. And I'm wondering what do you see as some of the, the, the ways that it, are productive to mm-hmm. come up with a purpose that actually works and transcends throughout the organization? And what are some of the easy pitfalls? Sure. Well, the easy pitfalls are borrowing it from somebody else. Um, tacking it on because it's feel good without really understanding how it achieves any kind of outcome. Um, Obviously giving it lip service. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a good question to start thinking about this is if we disappeared tomorrow, who would miss us and why? Um, You know, if if this institution or organization didn't exist, what, what would be lost? And I think that's a really good point of reflection to start to say, well, you know, here's where I add value. Here's where um, things could be different. In the book, uh, toward the end of the book, uh, I actually have a chapter on individual inflection points. Mm-hmm. And a couple of examples that I really love are um, we we have in our executive programs uh, often ask executives to write an article about themselves from five years from now. And we ask them to think about how did they get there? Um, what in the article would be like a, a fortune or business week yeah. or something, that kind of newspaper would be writing about them from five years from now. And the, what would the reporter say was a hallmark of their style? What did they have as their priorities? Um, you know, how did they, how did employees do under their guardianship? How did their family do under their mm-hmm. guardianship? And I've had so many executives tell me that they, you know, they hated the assignment on the one hand, but it really forced them to reflect. And what we do in the course is we we have them share with each other. So they're with a group of peers, not with a group of, you know, hierarchical relationships. So they're with people who are just like them and giving them each other feedback. And, you know, some of the feedback is pretty hard to take. It's like, you know, Joe, you say your family's all going to be thriving and wonderful and great, but if you go on the way you're going, you know, your children are going to be alienated. I don't know why your wife sticks around. I mean, you really have to rethink that area of priority for yourself. So um, that kind of feedback is very hard to get in life. Yes. <laughs> well, especially in leadership positions. Absolutely. And so this is one technique I found that really is is great. The other one, perhaps it's less relevant to leadership, but I think is useful for all of us is to take design thinking and apply it to your own life, mm-hmm. which is, you know, how do I think about something I want to create? What's my passion? What's my interest? And then work backward and say, well, what kinds of roles could get me there? I think one of the mistakes people fall into as individuals is they get wrapped up in, I want to be that thing. You know, I want to be an E level four, you know, slash two, because that has phenomenal cosmic powers. And that's what I want to be. Or I want to be in that particular office, or I want to drive that kind of car. And we get into very um, social comparison kind of traps. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you said, well, why, you know, what, what, what is the reason that is so appealing to you? And you get to things like, well, I'd really love to be able to assemble teams of super bright people to produce an outcome, or I'd really like to have an impact on this kind of problem, or, you know, I want to be able to have independence and I want to be able to call my own shots. Well, if those are the goals, sure, being an E4, 3, whatever might get you there, but there are a lot of other ways you could get there too. And really asking people to reflect on that, I think is super helpful because if you know what the goal is, then you're a lot more comfortable taking a bit of a winding path toward that goal. Well, I think goal clarification becomes its own uh, discipline in and of itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've sometimes asked people, you know, who wants $10 million and I've never not, not seen a hand go up. But then if you ask them, but what if that $10 million was in a prison cell and that's the only way you're get it, you start to identify really quickly that 
It's not the money. It's what you thought the money was going to get you. Exactly. Exactly. Or the car. Or so then that it's a way to, for people to really start to connect with why they are doing what they do. And, um, in the future of leadership, it really does occur. I had a friend of mine lead a, uh, a keynote and the people who he told his, uh, he told them about his keynote and they said, you can't go up there and talk about this. And his keynote was essentially saying that in the future, if you're going to be an effective CEO, you're going to have to be on some sort of personal development or spiritual path. And that was the thrust of the keynote. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about purpose, we talk about leadership, we talk about having workplaces that offer people fulfillment and satisfaction, there is no way to fake that. Mm -hmm. No, being authentic is key. And you know, one of the things that's interesting about human beings is we're intensely comparative creatures. So, you know, I think one of the things we're seeing in the quote, quote, populist movements that are all around us right now is people feel the system's rigged. People mm -hmm. feel it isn't fair. People feel it's not just. And so they are, you know, resorting to proverbial pitchforks to sort of say this isn't right. And on the upper end of the scale, one of the things I think is most tragic um, is actually best captured by something um, uh, Bill, um, what was his name? The founder of... Um, um, Bogers, Bogle, Bogle uh, William Bogle once mm -hmm. said, and uh, he was reportedly at a cocktail party out in the Hamptons, very fancy cocktail party. And there's this big hedge fund guy or somebody, you know, very, very wealthy person sort of talking about his last weekend and his yacht and this and that. <laughs> and um, Bogle said, and of course he's famous for founding Vanguard, I believe that's yeah. what it was. So the very first large scale way of ordinary people accessing wealth management tools. So he really was a prodigious spokesperson for the average person. And uh, apparently Bogle said to a colleague, he said, oh, I feel so sorry for that guy. And his colleague said, what do you mean? You know, he's got all this wealth. He's got mm. all this. And Bogle said, no, I've got something he'll never have. And the answer was enough. And he wrote a book called Enough. And I think... I think at the upper end of our economic spectrum, we've just so forgotten that. You know, there are only so many yachts you can buy. There's only so much thing you can do. And um, it's it's it ceases to have a lot of meaning. Uh, I was re re reflecting on um, uh, Roy Disney's granddaughter, referring mm -hmm. to the salary of the current um, CEO of Disney as insane. She said, what makes me crazy about this is you could take his salary and cut it in half, what his compensation, and cut it in half. And it would make a zip of a difference to his lifestyle. He can still buy more than anything. And if you took the rest of that salary and spread it out across the people who clean our rooms, the people who look after our parks, the people who provide security, it would make a tangible material difference to their lives. And that really struck me with just how out of balance things have gotten. Yeah. Do you see any signs or I should, maybe I should better articulate that as inflection points that show any uh, self-correction on the horizon? Well, I think, yes. I think though that you have to remember people who have power and financial means are not for the most part going to give them up lightly. I mean, they may do philanthropic things. They may, may know, but that's really around the edges. They're mm -hmm. not going to give up serious power and wealth uh, unless there's incredible pressure to do so. So uh, the things I see that could be the beginnings of that kind of a groundswell are an increase um, in the number of B Corps, 
Uh, we've got the establishment now of what's called a long-term stock exchange, so companies that are willing to make longer-term investments. We're starting to see a lot of policy talk about changing our tax regimes, right? Why should corporations be able to you know, sell products here and pay taxes wherever they, they're domiciled, right? Maybe they should be paying taxes wherever they make their profits. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and. I mean, there's a lot of policy stuff sort of rolling around. I think the thing that I would put in context is we used to have that kind of system. If you look at the period following World War II, right through about the Reagan eras, um, tax rates were very high on the wealthy. Uh, corporations had an ethos of retain and redistribute their mm-hmm. earnings. Shareholders were considered to be just one important stakeholder. And in the intervening years, we've had this ideological cover. And I would say the Chicago School and Milton Friedman and people bear a lot of responsibility mm-hmm. for that, which that corporations are run only for the benefit of the shareholders. And ironically, what you see in company after company is that undermines the long-term value and the shared prosperity that those can create. So I think we're going to have to recognize that we've been doing this now since 1980-something, and we're going to have to start picking away at those things bit by bit. And so I do think we are at a breaking point. Um, And I think, you know, one of the interesting things I've learned is if you go back to the New Deal, Franklin Mm -hmm. Roosevelt's New Deal, and in the New Deal, a lot of these programs that we now take for granted, Social Security, um, the, you know, the various medical um, bills, pension rights, I mean, a lot of the rights for workers, a lot of those things were not done out of out of some kind of sense of oh this benevolence is the right thing or to do. Yeah, yeah no i mean what roosevelt accomplished when you think about it was an astonishing shift in social goods without a shift in social power he mm. created the structures in which the masses felt that things were much, much more just and therefore the elites of the time actually retained their power now they hated him because he imposed taxes and mm-hmm. put a lot of pressure on the elites, but in a way he may have saved them from themselves. That's the, uh, you just hit on a couple really big points. One of which is we just got the uh, announcement from the business roundtable about a month ago, where for the first time, the top CEOs of corporations may have upended everything Milton Friedman said in, in no, un, in very clear terms. And for the first time, there seems to be at least an acknowledgement that shareholder-only profit cannot be the only metric. Well, it can be, but I think you need an appropriate time cycle over which to look at that. And that's really the big problem. So um, we have we have a, a big dilemma in the country, which is, I'll call it the financialization of everything. Mm. And when you're looking at people making investments... If their time horizon is 20 or 30 years, I have no problem with running an organization for long-term profit. I mean, that that's fine. Um, cap- capitalism should work that way. Right. But when you're t- looking at people who are holding a stock, they want it to go up you know, next year, and then they want to be out of that stock. These are not long-term investors. These are no. not true shareholders in the sense of they're actually bearing the risk of their investments. All that they're bearing is the risk of stock fluctuations in some kind of market. They're not making an investment in a plant or piece of equipment or international expansion in the way that we conventionally think about it. So I think we conflate those things. I don't think running corporations with shareholders in mind is a bad thing at all. If you're an entrepreneur, of course you want to run your company for you know the benefit of yourself and your family and whoever, and that's fine. You're putting your time, your treasure, your energy at risk. 
An independent shareholder who just says, well, I'm watching numbers on a chart on a computer. I think that one looks as though it's got a certain pattern I'm going to invest in. That You have no idea about who that company is, what they do. Yeah, I mean, you don't care. You're, you're, you're literally trading you know, X's and O's on a screen. That's not what we mean when we talk about people who actually have something at risk in, in capital terms. Well, and that's one of the things we tend to talk about in the design thinking community or innovation is really how do you create an ecosystem in which all of these healthy phenomenon can actually take place. Mm -hmm. And when we look at what we can do at a policy level, what we can do internally for companies, mm -hmm. you actually um, are a big advocate about not, about being ruthlessly candid about where people are currently. Mm -hmm. So when you talk to leaders about assessing themselves and their innovation proficiency, mm -hmm. do you oftentimes have to deal with the level of candor that mm -hmm. they're uncomfortable with, but really needs to be addressed. And there are ways of doing it and ways of not doing it. Like mm -hmm. you don't go in their face and say, you people are idiots. You've no idea what you're doing. That That's not going to get you anywhere. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. Um, what I think you, you have to do though is, um, and I had a conversation like this just, just the other day with, uh, with a senior executive from a major firm. And he was like, I don't believe that people change and I don't believe that people can do this. And I don't know. And he had a whole lot of beliefs in his head. And I just said, well, you know, here's what the research suggests and here's the facts and here's the data and here's how it's been studied. And he sort of looked at me afterwards. He said, so I may have to change my mind. And I said, well, look at the studies. You know, I can send you the evidence and, and think about it. Um, and I think you have to, you have to be open to presenting things to them in a way that's truthful, but accessible. Yeah. Well, I know we're on a little time crunch, right? Mm -hmm. I really want to thank you for coming in today. I know you've been on a book tour. <laughs> it's been, That's been uh, <laughs> You've been on the road for the last couple of weeks. And uh, I'm very excited about this book. It touches on so many important areas. I wish we could go on for another hour. <laughs> but thank you for being here. And I'm wishing you all the best. Thank you so much for having me. Rita McGrath is the author of Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. She's a corporate advisor and professor of business at Columbia Business School. If you'd like to learn more about our workshops or consulting and innovation strategy services, please visit us at evolutionofinnovation.com or email us at hello at evolutionofinnovation.com.